Good evening. Uh, welcome to, to this event to celebrate the arrival of Anne Applebaum's book. I don't have a book copy. Do you have a copy of the book? No. Well, anyhow, it, it is out, and you saw it when you came in, the uh, book Red Famine. So, my name is uh, Eric Bergloff. I'm a professor here at the LSE, and I'm the director of the Institute of Global Affairs. So six of our eight constituent centers are regional centers, but none of them cover Central Eastern Europe, uh, and it's a bit strange given how much time I spent trying to understand that region. But we try to organize events and encourage research and, and policy engagement um, on the region when we can. But perhaps most importantly, we are very delighted to, to welcome Anne Applebaum who has joined us to build uh, the ARENA program on this information. Together with Peter Pomrancev, who is also here, she's looking uh, at how fake news are being used to manipulate elections and, and, and more generally us, our attitudes and our aspirations. And since their arrival, they have really uh, enriched my life, so I'm, I'm very happy to have them here. Uh, so as I said, I spent a lot of time um, trying to understand the former Soviet bloc, but I really, when I have read Anne's two previous books, the book on the Gulag and, and Iron Curtain, they definitely changed how I view, viewed two very important uh, episodes or, or phenomena during uh, Soviet times. Of course, I wasn't alone in appreciating these two books. Uh, the Gulag book got uh, the Pulitzer Prize Anne is also a, a, an industrious, it's not a good word, industrious, but very prolific uh, journalist with weekly columns in the Washington Post, among other things, and, and, and of course, uh, extremely active Twitter uh, person. If you, if, you, um, if you don't follow her, you should. She is probably um, the real Donald's uh, number one enemy. Uh, <laughs> and, 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 um, and it's, you know, using his weapon of choice, so it's um, Twitter. So, so um, it's, delight, it's a delight to have Anne around. So, so this book is, in my view, an even more important book uh, than the previous ones, because it's really about defining a nation. You know, her husband, uh, Radek Sikorsky, the former Polish foreign minister, said when Anne had her book party uh, that, you know, nations are born out of great tragedies and, and, and victories. And, and modern Ukraine was at least in part born out of the events that this book uh, depicts in such a horrific and convincing detail. I've had the pleasure of working in Ukraine and, and after the Maidan revolution, and clearly those events and uh, the human sacrifice that came with those events were very important in shaping Ukraine's understanding of itself and, and its sense of direction. But the Red Famine and the Holodomor, as Anne, uh, as Anne has written about, uh, the Holodomor is the, the, the word being used for this human catastrophe, is over dimensions that um, are, you know, almost impossible to fathom. And, and I'm sure Anne will um, try to give some, some um, sense of that. So, so Anne has really done a, a young nation 
uh, an important service in bringing together so much of the existing sources and new evidence and, and penetrating the many layers of disinformation and fake news um, that surround this uh, um, set of events. It's actually, and I didn't know that before reading the book, there's actually sort of a Holodomor denial. Uh, it's a, you know, it's like the Holocaust deniers, there is a, a, a kind of community that has tried to deny this, uh, this uh, period in, in, in Ukraine's history. So, so I know that this was an extremely difficult book to write. The topic is deeply upsetting. So many lives aborted prematurely and uh, so much suffering. And I've seen Anne herself suffer profoundly uh, during the writing of the book. And uh, more than once I heard her promise herself that she would never write the book again. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I really hope that this is not true, and I don't think it is. But I, I saw uh, how, how taxing uh, working on this book was. And, um, you know, I, I'm very much hoping, I, I think I know that she will have take on future topics as well. But now it's for you, and to, to tell us about the book. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you to turn your mobile phones on silence. Um, you can, uh, of course, uh, tweet, and, and you can follow Anne on her t Twitter um, uh, during the, the... Well, you won't tweet during your talk, I guess. I'll try no, not I'll to. Try yeah. not to. <laughs> Anyhow. So, Anne, please, the floor is Thank yours. Thank you, Eric. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be back here again. Um, I love speaking at the LSE. I've done it numerous times before. Um, and I'm, I'm particularly pleased to be here now at the Institute of Global Affairs, uh, working on a topic that seems on the surface like it's quite far away from the history that I describe in my book. But it, uh, I hope to convince you at the end of this lecture that maybe <clears throat> it's not. Now, amusingly, um, I have a slight cold, and I'm going to try not to lose my voice <laughs> like some other people did today. Um, so if I stop, you can all just stand up and clap. <laughs> and <we'll, clears throat> so. The warning signs were ample. Um, by the spring of 1932, the peasants of Ukraine were beginning to starve. Uh, secret police reports and letters from the agricultural districts from all over the Soviet Union, from the North Caucasus, the Volga region, and Western Siberia, as well as Ukraine, uh, spoke of children swollen with hunger, of families eating grass and acorns, of peasants fleeing home in search of food. Uh, in March of 1932, a medical commission found corpses lying on the street in a village near Odessa. Uh, no one was strong enough to bury them. In another village, local authorities were trying to conceal the starvation. They denied what was happening to the medical commission even as it was unfolding before their visitors' eyes. Some people began writing directly to the Kremlin, asking for an explanation, and they refused to believe that the Soviet state could be responsible. A quote from one of the letters, Every day, 10 to 20 families die from famine in the villages. Children run off, and railway stations are overflowing with fleeing villagers. The bourgeoisie has created a genuine famine here, part of the capitalist plan to set the entire peasant class against the Soviet government. But the bourgeoisie had not created the famine. 
The Soviet Union's disastrous decision to force Soviet peasants to give up their land and join collective farms, the deportation of kulaks, the supposedly wealthier peasants, the chaos that followed, these policies, all the responsibility of Joseph Stalin, the general secretary of the Communist Party, had led the country to the brink of starvation. Throughout the spring and summer of 1932, Stalin's friends and colleagues sent him messages, urgent messages from all around the country describing the crisis. Uh, Communist Party leaders in Ukraine were especially desperate, and they wrote several long letters to him begging for help. Many of them believed in the summer of 1932 that a greater tragedy could still be avoided. The regime asked for international assistance, as it had during a previous famine in 1921. It could have done. Uh, it could have halted grain exports. It could have stopped demanding grain from the peasants altogether. Uh, but instead, in the autumn of 1932, the Soviet Politburo, the elite leadership of the Soviet Communist Party, took a series of decisions that widened and deepened the famine, specifically in the Ukrainian countryside. They increased the state's demand for food in Ukraine, requiring blacklisted Ukrainian farms and villages to contribute meat and vegetables as well as more grain. They drew a cordon around the republic so as to prevent Ukrainian peasants from traveling to Russia in search of food. They blocked the roads between the countryside and the cities. At the height of the crisis, organized teams of policemen and party activists motivated by hunger, fear, and a decade of hateful and conspiratorial rhetoric entered peasant households and took everything edible, potatoes, beets, squash, beans, peas, anything in the oven and anything in the cupboard. They took farm animals. They took pets. Uh, sometimes they took money and clothes. And the result was a catastrophe. Uh, within a few weeks of Stalin's orders, Ukrainian peasants began eating moss, acorns, leaves, dandelions, river reeds. They hunted rats and mice. They boiled frogs and toads. As they grew hungry, many went mad. Famously, there were numerous instances of cannibalism which were reported to the police and reported to Moscow. Uh, nevertheless, an extraordinary cynical state set up shops where hungry, hungry people could sell their valuables, and many trekked for days to exchange old czarist-era medals or wedding rings for bread or grain. But by the spring, many began to die. Ukrainian peasants died in their homes and in their yards, leaving their villages spookily empty. Uh, they traveled to the railways trying to get out, and they died at the stations. Uh, they tried to work, and they died in the fields. Uh, they died in large numbers that, once again, there was often nobody to bury them. But famine was only half the story, because while the peasants were dying in the countryside, the Soviet secret police, the same people who were simultaneously organizing the famine, orchestrating the searches, uh, blockading the roads, simultaneously launched an attack on the Ukrainian intellectual and political elite. So as the famine spread, a campaign of slander and repression was launched against Ukrainian intellectuals, professors, museum curators, writers, artists, priests, and theologians, public officials, and bureaucrats. Anybody connected to the short-lived Ukrainian People's Republic, about which more in a moment, which existed for a few months in 1917, anybody who'd promoted the Ukrainian language or Ukrainian history, anybody with an independent literary or, or artistic career was liable to be publicly vilified, jailed, even executed. Unable to watch what was happening, Mikola Skripnik, 
one of the best-known leaders of the Ukrainian Communist Party, committed suicide. Uh, one, of Ukrainian's best, best, one of Ukraine's best-known writers, Mikhail Khvilovy, killed himself as well. Um, in his suicide note, he spoke of the murder of a generation. Thousands of Ukrainian churches were physically destroyed, along with historical buildings and monuments in Kiev. Books were banned. Art was confiscated. Even Ukrainian dictionaries were altered. A letter was dropped from the Ukrainian alphabet in order to make the language seem closer to Russian. Taken together, these two policies, the Holodomor in the winter and spring of 1933 and the repression of the Ukrainian intellectual and political class in the months that followed, brought about the Sovietization of Ukraine, the destruction of the Ukrainian national idea, and the neutering of any Ukrainian challenge to Soviet unity. Uh, Rafael Lemkin, uh, the Polish-Jewish lawyer who invented the word genocide, spoke of Stalin's assault on Ukraine as the classic example of his concept. It is a case of genocide, he wrote, of destruction, not of individuals only, but of a culture and a nation. But why? And why did Stalin do it? And why did so many people go along with his decision? To understand the origins of the Bolshevik animus against Ukraine, it's very important to go back in time. Uh, after all, when Stalin was thinking about Ukraine in the 1930s, he was not dealing with a new problem. You know, in this story, as in so many others, this event makes no sense unless you understand its prehistory. So for the Bolsheviks, the problem of Ukraine had a very precise starting point, and that, again, was 1917, a year that we're soon going to be celebrating and discussing uh, as the anniversary of the revolution. Uh, except, of course, it was not a year of just one revolution, but of several. Uh, in Moscow, of course, there were two. There was the street revolution of February 1917, which led to the Tsar's resignation, uh, and the Bolshevik coup d'etat in October. But in Kiev, there was a third revolution, and it was spearheaded by a group of intellectuals, led, I'm glad to say, by a historian, Mikhailo Khrushchevsky. And from the first moment they appeared, the Bolsheviks sought to undermine them. Why? Because the Ukrainian national leadership was revolutionary, but not Bolshevik. Their economics were very radical, and they included the demand for the compulsory redistribution of land. Ukraine, remember, was at that time still largely a peasant nation. Most Ukrainian speakers were peasants, and the Ukrainian revolution was carried out with them in mind. Their politics were very radical, too. As Imperial Russia collapsed, Ukraine's leaders demanded to be part of the spring of nations that was then blossoming across the region. Uh, within months, Poland, Czechoslovakia, the Baltic states, and others would all gain statehood and international recognition, and Ukraine wanted to join them. But this desire ran immediately counter to the Bolsheviks' priorities and even counter to their understanding of the world. You know, as men educated in the Russian Empire, they had difficulty imagining a sovereign Ukraine. For them, the territory of Ukraine, long a Russian imperial colony, was a region they knew as South Russia. Uh, the Ukrainian language to them was a dialect of Russian. It, it didn't have any status to them as a literary language. As Marxists, they had mixed feelings about peasants whose revolutionary credentials they doubted. And as revolutionaries who knew that the Tsar had been toppled by food riots, uh, they had no mixed feelings at all about the loss of access to Ukrainian grain. For God's sake, Lenin wrote to his comrades fighting in Ukraine in January 19, is a quote, 
Use all energy and all revolutionary measures to send grain, grain, and more grain. Otherwise, Petrograd may starve to death. Use special trains and special detachments. Collect and store. Escort the trains. Inform us every day. For God's sake. Nobody was more sensitive this, to this call than Joseph Stalin, who was at that time directly responsible for Bolshevik policy in Ukraine. As the People's Commissar for Nationalities in the first Bolshevik government, he not only denounced the Ukrainian Declaration of Sovereignty in 1917, he followed up with what we would now call active measures, psychological games intended to destabilize the Ukrainian government. Uh, in a number of cities, local Bolsheviks tried to establish so-called independent Soviet republics. These were tiny Moscow-backed mini-states, if that sounds familiar, which were, of course, not independent at all. Uh, in Kiev, they tried to carry out a coup d'etat. In Kharkiv, they sought to create a rival alternative Ukrainian government. Uh, eventually, they conquered Kiev in February 1918, only to be expelled again in March. Uh, they then conquered Kiev again in February 1919. And this time they stayed in power for several months. Uh, they established a secret police force, a branch, a branch of the Cheka, which is the organization that eventually became the NKVD and then the KGB. Uh, they carried out mass arrests. They looked for counter-revolutionaries. And they sent armed soldiers into villages to requisition food. All, all these were policies that angered and infuriated people who were already, by 1919, exhausted by several years of war and waves of invasion. How did they react? There was a massive, violent peasant rebellion against the Bolsheviks, probably the largest that had ever to take place in Europe. Uh, its leaders were various, and they ranged from the populist um, Adam and Grigoriev to the anarchist Nestor Makhno. But the peasants were united in their overwhelming hostility to the Bolsheviks, their grain requisitions, and their repression. Many believed in the ideals of the far left, peace and land and bread for the peasants, but they hated the Soviet Communist Party, which they perceived as a foreign body in Ukraine. An observer who visited Ukraine on a Red Cross mission at that time paraphrased Ukrainian thinking like this. He said, a special peasant phraseology was formed. We are Bolshevists, said the peasants in the Ukraine, but not communists. The Bolsheviki gave us land while the communists take away our grain without giving us anything for it. We will not allow the Red Army to hang the commune about our necks. Down with the commune, long live the Bolsheviki. And so confused was the terminology at the time that, of course, those sentences could easily have been written the other way around. Down with the Bolsheviks and long live the communists. Uh, but the point was clear. Ukrainian peasants had wanted one form of revolution, but they had got something else altogether. Their rebellion destabilized everything. The Bolsheviks, the Ukrainians, the economy, uh, the agriculture of the region. And Ukraine collapsed into chaos. And in the course of 1919, Kiev was occupied no fewer than a dozen times, sometimes very easily. Um, there's a famous story about Polish troops marching into Kiev, um, and entering the city by hitching rides on local trams and simply riding their way into the center of town. But at the height of the anarchy, uh, white imperial Russian forces under the command of General Denikin, who was a former czarist general, advanced into the Donbass, Kharkiv, and Odessa. Uh, eventually they marched north and they came within 200 miles uh, of Moscow. 
Uh, Denikin failed to make common cause either with the Ukrainians or the Poles, and so eventually he lost. But for a very brief and terrifying moment in the autumn of 1919, the Bolsheviks really were frightened. Suddenly it seemed as if Moscow would fall. Uh, the Ukrainian rebellion had caused so much, uh, so much turmoil that they had actually brought the enemy right up to the gates of the city, nearly. Um, it did not. But as I say, the peasant uprising had brought the counter-revolution, as they saw it, very close to success. And this close call was long remembered at the highest levels of the Soviet regime. What they called the cruel lesson of 1919 was often debated and discussed for years afterwards. Um, it led to some milder policies in Ukraine in the 1920s and to a new economic policy, which allowed the peasants once again to buy and sell grain. But the fear of another rebellion was never very far away. And a decade later, in 1928, when two leading secret policemen were writing an internal report on the political state of the Ukrainian countryside, they referred, even then, this is 10 years later, again and again to the events of 1918. They recalled how, and this is a quote, the kulaks and the rural bourgeoisie, uh, led by anti-Soviet parties, had fought the Bolsheviks during that, again, quote, kulak uprising, and they feared that it could happen again. Same fears haunted Stalin himself. So in the early 1930s, as his collectivization policy began to fail, he once again became fixated on Ukraine. In the summer of 1932, at that moment when things could still have been done, uh, as it became clear that grain yields were once again very low and people were beginning to go hungry, he wrote a letter to one of his colleagues, uh, Lazar Kaganovich, who had long functioned as his representative in Ukraine. And again, I quote, the most important issue, and he underlined that, right now is Ukraine. Things in Ukraine have hit rock bottom. Things are bad with regard to the party. There is talk that in two regions of Ukraine, and he mentions Kiev and Dnipropetrovsk, uh, about 50 district party committees have spoken out against the grain procurement plan, deeming it unrealistic. And then he went on, broadening his complaint from the Ukrainian Communist Party to all of Ukraine. He feared treason. He feared the influence of neighboring Poland. He feared its leader, Joseph Pilsudski. And above all, he feared Ukrainian nationalists who he believed were still faithful to their former, one of the former leaders during the, during the Civil War, Simon Petlura. I quote again, Stalin writes, unless we begin to straighten out the situation in Ukraine, we may lose Ukraine. Keep in mind, too, that the Ukrainian Communist Party has quite a lot, yes, quite a lot of rotten elements, conscious and unconscious Petlura adherents, and finally direct agents of Pilsudski. Um, he then gave Kaganovich his conclusions, remove the Ukrainian party leaders as quickly as possible and transform Ukraine into, quote, a real fortress of the USSR, into a genuinely exemplary republic. Certainly, quote, without these and similar measures, we may lose Ukraine. And losing Ukraine for Stalin was unthinkable and impossible. Because, again, what did his experience tell him? That unrest in Ukraine was uniquely dangerous because it might once again bring counter-revolution to the outskirts of Moscow. The decisions taken in the autumn of 1932, decisions which, as I say, deliberately intensified and strengthened the famine, which isolated Ukraine, which decimated Ukraine's leadership, um, which hollowed out Ukraine's cultural institutions and repressed its language, these were Stalin's way of ensuring that the Ukrainian national movement would die out and the Ukrainian rebellion would not repeat itself ever again. Uh, except, 
of course, uh, that it did. Um, in 1991, Ukrainians voted to become independent, and just as Stalin feared, that decision helped bring about the end of the Soviet Union. Because it was so devastating, and because it was so thoroughly silenced, and because it had such a profound impact on the demography and psychology and politics of Ukraine, the Ukrainian famine continues to shape the thinking of Ukrainians and Russians, uh, both about themselves and about one another, in ways that are both obvious and subtle. Uh, certainly the physical destruction of Ukraine's elite in the 1930s, again, the nation's best scholars, the best writers, the political leaders, uh, as well as its most energetic farmers, um, continues to matter in today's Ukraine. Uh, even three generations later, many of contemporary Ukraine's political problems can be traced directly back to the loss of that first post-revolutionary patriotic elite and to the mass murder and the displacement of so many rural Ukrainians. Uh, in 1933, the men and women who would have led the country, um, the people who would have influenced it and who would have in turn influenced others, were abruptly removed from the scene. And the structure of the countryside was turned upside down, and village councils were replaced by party committees, priests were removed, um, and the structure of leadership and authority was altered. Um, and worse, those who led Ukraine in the aftermath of the famine and the mass arrests were people who had been frightened into silence and obedience. They were people who were taught to be wary and careful, um, who, who were taught to be cowed and afraid. In subsequent years, the state became a thing to be feared and not admired. Uh, politicians and bureaucrats were never again seen as benign public servants. Um, certainly, they were often not seen as public servants at all. They were seen as people acting in their own interests. The political passivity in Ukraine, uh, the tolerance of corruption, and the general wariness of state institutions, even today's democratic state institutions, uh, in a country which is incredibly good actually at creating civic institutions, um, which, in, in which, where civil society blossoms and people can organize themselves uh, extremely well, um, all of these contemporary Ukrainian political pathologies date back to 1933. The Russification that followed the famine also left its mark. You know, thanks to the USR's systematic destruction of Ukrainian culture and memory in the wake of the famine, many Russians still don't treat Ukraine as a separate nation with a separate history. And many Europeans are only dimly aware that Ukraine exists at all. Uh, Europe, Ukrainians themselves can have mixed loyalties. Um, you know, that ambiguity can sometimes translate into apathy. Um, certainly people who don't know much or care much about the history of their own nation aren't likely to work to make it a better place. Ukraine's contemporary linguistic battles date from the 1930s as well. Paradoxically, Stalin reinforced the link between the Ukrainian language and Ukrainian national identity when he tried to destroy them both. Uh, as a result, the linguistic controversies continue to reflect deeper arguments about identity even today. Uh, Ukraine is a thoroughly bilingual country. Uh, most people speak both Ukrainian and Russian, and I've been to public meetings in Kiev where people switch between the two, um, which of course is irritating for me since I only speak Russian. Uh, yet those who prefer one language or the other still regularly complain of discrimination. Uh, riots broke out in 2012 when the Ukrainian state recognized Russian as an official language in several provinces, meaning only that it could be used in courts and government offices. 
then in 2014, the post-Maidan Ukrainian government tried to repeal that law, and though the repeal was quickly reversed, Russian-backed separatists used this proposed change, and will still refer to it, to justify their invasion of Ukraine. Uh, it's worth noting that Russia's challenge, uh, both to the Ukrainian language and to Ukrainian sovereignty, have also created a different kind of popular backlash. Um, in 2005, less than half of the Ukrainians used that, that language as their main form of communication. Um, ten years later, two-thirds prefer Ukrainian to Russian. So in other words, thanks to Russian pressure and thanks to this link between um, language and identity that created in the 1930s, the nation is now unifying behind the Ukrainian languages as it has not done for many decades. Um, but if the study of the famine helps explain contemporary Ukraine, it also offers a guide to some of the attitudes of contemporary Russia, uh, many of which form also are part of older patterns. So from the time of the revolution, the Bolsheviks knew that they were a minority in Ukraine. And so to subjugate the majority, they used not only extreme violence, but also virulent and angry forms of propaganda. The Holodomor, the famine, was preceded by a decade of what we would now call hate speech, uh, language designated, designating some people as loyal Soviet citizens and others as enemy kulaks, a privileged class that would have to be destroyed to make way for the people's revolution. And that ideological language justified the behavior of the men and women who facilitated the famine, the people who confiscated food from starving families, the policemen who arrested and killed their fellow citizens. It also provided them with a sense of moral and political justification. You know, very few of the men and women who organized the famine felt guilty about having done so. You know, they had been persuaded that the dying peasants were enemies of the people, that these were dangerous criminals who had to be eliminated in the name of progress. Um, over and over again, uh, people who recall this moment remember, yes, you know, I was taught that the peasants were standing in the way. Why was the revolution failing? Why was food not being distributed as fast as possible? Why were we not succeeding in catching up to the capitalist world fast enough? It's because the Ukrainian and, 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 and Soviet peasantry were standing in our way. And 80 years later, the Russian FSB, the institutional successor of the KGB, which was itself the institutional successor of the Cheka, uh, continues to demonize its opponents using propaganda disinformation. So the nature and form of hate speech in Ukraine has changed, but the intentions of those who use it have not. You know, as in the past, the Kremlin deliberately uses language designed to set people against one another, uh, to create different categories of citizen, um, to create first and second class groups of people, as well as to divide and distract. Uh, in 1932 and 33, Soviet state media described um, the, the, the uh, secret police troops working with local collaborators as Soviet patriots, fighting petlurists and kulaks and traitors and counter-revolutionaries. And in 2014, Russian state media described Russian special forces carrying out the invasion of Crimea and eastern Ukraine as separatist patriots fighting fascists and Nazis from Kiev. An extraordinary disinformation campaign, complete with fake stories, you know, that, the, for example, Ukrainian nationalists had crucified a baby, for example, uh, and fake photographs followed, not only inside Russia, but on Russian state-sponsored media around the world. 
So though far more sophisticated than anything that Stalin could have devised in an era before electronic media, the spirit of that disinformation campaign um, is not so different. Uh, Eighty years later, it is also possible to hear Stalin's fear of Ukraine, um, or rather his fear of unrest spreading from Ukraine to Russia in the present as well. You know, Stalin spoke obsessively about the loss of control in Ukraine and about Polish and other foreign plots to, to subvert Ukraine. Um, he knew that Ukrainians were suspicious of centralized rule, that collectivization would be unpopular among Ukrainian peasants who were deeply attached to their land. Uh, he knew that Ukrainian nationalism was a galvanizing force, as I said, capable of challenging Bolshevism and even undermining it. Uh, he knew that a sovereign Ukraine could thwart the Soviet project, not only by depriving the USSR of its grain, but also by robbing it of legitimacy. Um, all of those, um, all, all those peasants shouting, you know, down with the Bolsheviks, up with the communists. Um, you know, this was a real threat to, to Moscow's legitimacy. It's claimed to be the heart of the, the, of the, of the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, besides, you know, Ukraine had been a Russian colony for centuries. Um, Ukrainian and Russian culture remained and were and remain actually today closely intertwined. Um, Russian and Ukrainian languages are closely related. You know, if Ukraine rejected Soviet ideology and the Soviet system, you know, that rejection could cast doubt on the whole Soviet project, which, as I've noted, uh, in 1991 it did. Uh, Russia's current leadership knows this same history. Um, uh, I know from working in Gulag archives that the KGB studies its own history. They read case studies. They look at what they did in the past. Um, they assess how things have happened before. And Russia's current leaders, many of them would have undergone that same kind of training. You know, so as in 1932, when Stalin told Kaganovich that losing Ukraine was his greatest worry, the current Russian government also insists on believing that a sovereign, democratic, and stable Ukraine you know, Ukraine that is tied to the rest of Europe by links of culture and trade is a threat to the interests of Russia. Or, I should be more precise, it's a threat to the interests of Russia's elite. You know, after all, if Ukraine becomes too European, if it were to achieve anything even resembling successful integration into the West, then Russians might ask, why not us? The Ukrainian street revolution of 2014 represented the Russian leadership's worst nightmare. You know, that was it. Young people calling for the rule of law, denouncing corruption, and waving the European flag. And such a movement could have been contagious, and so it had to be stopped by whatever means possible. You know, today, as I said, today's Russian government once again uses disinformation and corruption and military force to undermine Ukrainian sovereignty and Ukraine's attempt to become democratic. Uh, and once again, it's useful at home as well. Just as in 1932, this constant talk of war and enemies in Ukraine also remain useful to Russian leaders who cannot explain stagnant living standards or justify their own privileges and wealth and power without referring to an outside threat. Still, uh, history offers hope as well as tragedy. Uh, in the end, the famine failed. Uh, Ukraine was not destroyed, and the Ukrainian language did not disappear. And the desire for independence and did not disappear either, and more importantly, neither did the desire for democracy or at the very least for a more just society, society disappear, um, or for a Ukrainian state which truly represented Ukrainians. Uh, in the end, Stalin failed too. 
um, generation of Ukrainian intellectuals and politicians were murdered in the 1930s, but their legacy lived on. You know, the national aspiration was revived in the 1960s. It continued underground in the 1970s and 1980s. It became open once again in the 1990s. Uh, a new generation of Ukrainian intellectuals and activists reappeared in the 2000s, um, and they are, you know, very much with us today. So the history of the famine is a tragedy with no happy ending, um, but the history of Ukraine is not a tragedy. Now, millions of people were murdered, but the nation remains on the map. Uh, the memory of the famine was suppressed, but Ukrainians can today discuss and debate their past normally. Uh, census records were destroyed, but today the archives are accessible. Um, archives in Ukraine are among the most accessible indeed in, anywhere in Europe. Uh, years of terror left their mark. Uh, but although the wounds are still there, millions of Ukrainians can, for the first time since 1933, uh, finally begin to heal them. Thank you very much. Do you want to stand? Or? I can, I'm happy to stand. Okay. So, so uh, it's your time. Questions, please introduce yourself. There's a question here. Uh, though, do, oh, you're going to have, there's one up there, actually. But, uh, no, no, go ahead. Uh, thank you very much for your speech. I'm a current uh, history student in LSE, and my question is about the duty and the ability of historians. Uh, I'll talk about, like, a similar thing happened in China, mm -hmm. in Cambodia, in North Korea, and all these countries going through great famine, and most of them are uh, somehow supported by the regime. And uh, uh, for historians today, um, it's very difficult for us to recover what has happened and how the Communist Party, which is still in power, contribute to this kind of disaster, and without the back of a national state like Israel for Holocaust and Ukraine for Holodomor, uh, without access to archives, without academic freedom, without uh, even an internet connect to Google, what can historians do to recover the past and tell the world about the disaster in the past? Thank you. You Thank want to you. take them one by one, or maybe this one is... I'll take them one by one. Oh, that's a particularly good question that I, I'm... Um, it, it, and it brings up an important point about the Ukrainian famine, which is, of course, um, you know, bef before archives were open, it was very difficult to write about. And although it was done, um, it was done, first of all, by Ukrainians, particularly in the diaspora, people who left the country. Um, and, there were, and there were a number of histories uh, written in the 1980s, the most famous one by Robert Conquest. Um, one of the difficulties people had in convincing the world that this had really happened um, was that Ukraine itself lacked uh, sovereignty. Um, and people said, well, who are you? Are you, you, you know, you're a bunch of emigres. You're not, you don't have a real country. You don't come from anywhere. Um, and it was very hard without the backing of the state and without the backing of, without the use of archives to tell the story in a way that's authoritative and, and convincing, even though 
the story as it was told before was, of course, correct. Um, but so, so I know that it's difficult. Um, I know there have been a number of um, Chinese attempts to get at this story recently. You probably know the book Tombstone um, and, and one or two others. Um, and it, it does seem to me that China is a little different in that you, you know, the story isn't banned in completely. I mean, it seems that if you, you can get access and you can begin to speak and write about it, um, and there are oral history, there's some access to some kinds of archives, some local archives, and so on. So I would think that um, if you were able to, uh, you know, if you were willing to devote the time, there's more that, that there's there's more that can be told. But I agree the the convincing the state and convincing the um, academic authorities that this is an important story to be told is part of convincing people that it's real. Um, it's a very difficult dilemma in places where um, elements of the past continue to be suppressed. But yes. The question, a couple of questions up here. So. Uh, very interesting talk, uh, Anne. One thing that surprises me when you look at the leadership of the Soviet Union, certainly post-Stalin, how you had uh, senior Ukrainian people at the leadership of the Soviet Union, how they may not have you know, tried to take the position back to the Ukraine, but through, through Khrushchev and Gorbachev, how listening to you, you could tend to think that it's very much all being led by, by Russians maybe in the leadership. But would you not have expected them maybe to have played a role as in Khrushchev or indeed Gorbachev to try and, uh, should we say, repatriate or to move things back towards uh, the Ukraine in terms of its sovereignty? So do you want, do you want to take a couple before or, or keep answering one more? So the, the, um, the question which I couldn't quite hear, um, but I, the question was about the uh, post-Stalin leadership of the Soviet Union. And, and the influence of uh, and, 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 and so, so it's important to understand that the, in, in the Soviet Union, Soviet identity was much stronger and more important than national identities. And if you identified with the party, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, one of the difficulties in discussing this is that, you know, it's not quite the case that this is some kind of story about Russians fighting Ukrainians, because it's really not. And the the, you know, there were Russians involved, for example, in the activist groups who went into villages and took food, but there were also some Ukrainians who were involved. And it really was a story about the Soviet state and Soviet ideology and Soviet secret police being used against this one nationality to suppress it. So, um, it, you know, I, w I wouldn't want to see it as, a, as some kind of Russian war on Ukraine. And indeed, most of the, I mean, of course, not everybody, but many of the many of the Ukrainian leadership who've talked about the famine in in recent years have tried to make that point that this was a, you know, this was a Soviet, um, you know, a Soviet crime and not a Russian crime as such. And of course, it's interesting that the Russian leadership um, today has decided to see itself as the inheritor of the Soviet Union, which is, creates a lot of a lot of confusion now. Um, but so, no, the answer is people like Khrushchev. Khrushchev was, of course, Ukrainian, and he was one of the Ukrainian communists who was brought into Ukraine to replace the ones who'd been murdered in the 1930s. And he was part of the group who organized those murders. So, <clears throat> you know, so he had an interest in continuing the cover-up. Um, it's also interesting that in his famous secret speech in which he um, attacked Stalin, um, he mentioned a very specific number of Stalinist crimes, but he left out the famine, um, and indeed he left out the mention of purges in Ukraine, so, which he had himself been responsible for. So, um, you know, many of the post, 
you know, post-Stalinist leaders of the USSR wouldn't have perceived themselves as Ukrainian or as Ukrainian nationals. They saw themselves as somehow loyal to the Soviet state. So I think, I think that explains it. Uh, my grandfather fled uh, the Ukraine, we think, in about the early 1900s and had a scar on his head for the rest of his life, which I can remember, caused by a program led by Cossacks, we believe. <clears throat> Are you able to talk about how the Jewish community fared during the period of the famine and how that featured in the politics of the time? Yes. Um, that's, a, that's a complicated question because the records of you know, what exactly happened to Jews through that period weren't necessarily kept well, and Jews weren't until later on so easily sorted um, by Soviet statistics. Um, in my book, um, I speak about the pogroms of, that took place during the Civil War because I think they're also part of the prehistory of the famine. Um, for those who don't know, one of the things that happened during the Russian Civil War were these um, massive attacks on Jewish communities, um, including mass murders, carried out, I think, pretty much by everybody who was involved in the Civil War. I mean, there's evidence of... <clears throat> Um, you know, Ukrainian army, Tsarist army, um, Red Army, uh, and even some Polish army participation in Jewish pogroms at that, in that time. So it's very hard to um, separate out blame. Um, quite a lot of Jews left Ukraine um, at that time, managed to get out, and so the numbers were lower. Um, Jews were usually, for the most part, not seen as part of the peasantry, they, and they were often not peasants because in, in Tsarist Russia they didn't own land. Um, and so the Jews weren't as directly affected by the famine. They were often, um, you know, they were often, uh, they had been, you know, they were affected by other Soviet policies because they were merchants and because they were traders. They, um, you know, they were subject to other kinds of purges and other kinds of mass arrests. Um, the, the only evidence I found of their, um, you know, what happened in Jewish communities during the famine is there are a couple of good examples of Jews actually helping Ukrainians by lending them food or by taking in Ukrainian children. Um, and, of course, the famine is also famous for having led to this, um, you know, extraordinary wave of anti-Semitism, as Jews were often blamed for the famine. Um, there's no evidence that I was ever able to find that says there was anything particularly Jewish about the activist committees that went into villages but often Ukrainian peasants would remember anybody who was from the outside as being foreign or Russian or Jewish, or, you know, whatever, whatever they were. So that's a, that's a complicated story and hard to, hard to pick apart. Um, generally speaking, they weren't direct victims they, because they weren't, they weren't landowners and they weren't peasants, um, and they weren't part of collectivization either. Um, of course, everybody in Ukraine, and that includes people who live in cities, you know, Jews, Germans, of whom there were also large communities, um, suffered from the food shortages. And, you know, there were also large numbers of deaths in cities as well. And so that would have affected everybody, Jewish or non-Jewish. Okay. Question back. Please, please remember to introduce yourself. Um, Hi, my name is Svetlana. I'm from the EBRD. Good to see you, Eric. Uh, thank you very much for the book. Um, my grandmother told me about the famine. She remembered it as a child, and she um, was extremely happy when Stalin died. And in fact, had to um, uh, really conceal the glee, because she, well, she particularly hated him, not just for the um, uh, 
terrible deaths and the uh, cannibalism instances in, in the village, but because people had to destroy their orchards because Stalin taxed fruit trees. And when he died, that tax had been re was repealed later and um, brought relief. And uh, that, that element was particularly haunting for her. Uh, I, would, uh, I wanted to ask whether this will be translated into Ukrainian and or Russian and how this research is perceived in Ukraine and Russia. Thank you. Actually, could you repeat that? I just, I didn't hear it. Are you, is this book going to be translated oh, into will be translated. Russian and how is this perceived? Um, Particularly in Ukrainian, maybe. Yes, so, so it is definitely being translated into Ukrainian and in fact it's the translators already started working on it and I'm working with that translator who I know and who's, who's going to do it very well. Um, Russian I don't know about. <laughs> It has, although it has to be said, both of my two previous books, the book about the Gulag and the book about the Sovietization of Eastern Europe, were translated into Russian. I mean, they were done sort of by um, smaller, one was done by a kind of political institute, think tank, in Russia, um, and they were done in very small numbers. But they exist in Russian, and I'm told are often pirated on the internet. Um, so... <laughs> So they're around, but I, I hope it. I, I do hope it's translated into Russian because I think it would help Russians a lot to know this story, um, as it explains um, some of the things about Ukraine that they must find hard to understand. You know, why are people so angry, and um, where does this, you know, where does this desire for independence come from, and you know, what is that all about? I mean, if you if you read this story, you begin to understand a little bit better. So I, yes, I, I hope it will be translated into Russian, but so far there are no offers. We'll see. In the middle there. Also, it will be in Polish in February, very fast. Um, my name is uh, Adam Somerset. Uh, by way of prelude, can I just say that uh, after the uh, Jaruzelski coup, I ate and drank a few times with a young Polish student who stayed here um, in exile in England. And um, I can say that 18 and 19, your husband-to-be had an extraordinary intelligence and precocity, and uh, that, that, is, um, that is irrelevant. Um, you mentioned the... Um, it may be irrelevant, but uh, uh, anyway, character marks itself, but it's young. Um, you mentioned the uh, demographic uh, impact on Ukraine. Uh, one of the um, elements with, where, where, um, which distinguishes the Russian Federation is the um, appalling level of uh, ill health, premature mortality rocketing um, cardiovascular disease. I was wondering whether Ukraine actually shared this cultural inheritance among its uh, population as a whole or whether it was closer to uh, Czechoslovakia and the nations to its west. So I don't know the answer to that. I have to tell you whether how different it is from Russia. I haven't looked at the numbers. Um, I would guess that it's not that different because most of the phenomenon that have created this, these, you know, democratic, demographic problems and relatively early deaths in Russia are to do with the way people live and health and smoking and alcohol. <clears throat> and those are really, you know, that's, that's to do with the Soviet and post-Soviet lifestyle rather than a national one. Um, and so I would guess it's the same, but I don't know. Actually, Eric might know because he's worked as an economist in Ukraine, but... No. I, I think basically that's true. So that they also yeah. had a uh -huh. they had a, a collapse in, in life expectancy about the yeah. same size. And it, I mean, it's also it's the Soviet heritage, but it's also the the trauma of those years, of course, where you know yeah. massive losses in GDP, maybe fifty percent, and so it's so it's um, you know it was a very difficult period for many. Yeah. Years. So I, I don't I don't know, but I'm guess I, I would guess um, I would guess it, it's similar. Mm. So. Thank you.
Sorry, Eric's in charge of picking people, so yeah, don't be it. mad at me. Hi, um, you, you talked about the, the Russian uh, secret you, police. Sorry, introduce yourself. Oh, sorry, Andrew Smith. Uh, you talked about uh, the Russian secret police uh, investigating what worked and what didn't work. Do you, do you get any feel that this, they, they had a, a template for engineering this, um, this famine? And d did Stalin see this famine as a success for his lifetime? So that's an interesting question. Um, some people think, and I could not prove this, and so I, I alluded to the theory in my book, but I didn't claim that it's true, that an earlier famine um, in 1920 and 21, some of you may know that in the wake of the Civil War, there was a wide famine in Russia. Um, in Ru it, was in, it affected Russia and Ukraine, and it led to a big international campaign. There was a um, call for help. Maxim Gorky wrote letters to you know, famous foreign intellectuals asking for help for Russia. And <clears throat> the U.S., actually, there was a big American sort of famine committee that went into Russia to help people. Um, and one of the effects of that famine, which was, was definitely not planned, but one of the side effects of it, which is that, was that it ended the Civil War. And so in the wake of the famine, particularly in southern Ukraine, which, which that famine affected more than the central region, um, in southern Ukraine, uh, people stopped fighting because they were hungry. And there is a theory that having seen this happen, um, this idea occurred to the Bolsheviks years later. Wasn't that a useful way to get rid of that rebellion? Um, so in that sense, it's some, by some people, it's seen as a kind of precursor. And some of the conversations about that famine um, um, you know, might have given people the idea that this could be, okay, that was an accidental famine. What if we orchestrated one? But I don't have any, I don't have any documentary you know, straight, um, straight proof of that. Um, it's certainly true that the Ukrainian famine may have given Hitler some ideas um, because forced starvation of that kind was one of the things that he did first when he occupied um, parts of Eastern Europe. So the first attempt to murder Jews in Poland and actually later in Ukraine was not done by concentration camps. It was done by locking people in ghettos and depriving them of food. And so this, this idea that you could get rid of unwanted populations by depriving them of food became, um, you know, common to both sides, um, both both sides of the, of the during the Hitler-Stalin war um, some years later. Um, did, you know, Stalin never went around trumpeting the famine as a success, and as I've said, it was mostly very heavily repressed. Um, the famine was never discussed in public. Uh, the census that was taken in 1937 that showed a big drop in the population of Ukraine was repressed and never published. Um, a second census that was taken in 1939 was manipulated to make it to hide the famine. So there was a, so he certainly never talked about it as a success. Um, there is a very interesting series of letters between him and the writer, um, God, I was about to say Shostakovich, but that would be the musician Shostakovich, I mean Sholokhov, um, the writer of um, Quiet, As Quiet Flows the Dawn. And who lived in the Kuban, which was an area right next to Ukraine, and who wrote to Stalin about some of the terrible things that had happened during and after collectivization and saying, you know, people were dying and so on. And Stalin wrote back, essentially saying, you know, okay, I'll see what I can do for your village, but, 
you know, remember that these are people who were standing in the way of the revolution. You know, they're unnecessary. You know, they're, sta- they're in our way. We don't want them here. So in other words, reaffirming once again the kind of propaganda that was used before the famine. In other words, these were unnecessary people. It's, you know, it's a good thing they're gone. And that's a, that private exchange of letters, which is now you can read in archives, um, is the closest thing we having to him, him acknowledging that people had died and, and not being displeased about it. But, but no, he never said it publicly. I mean, one thing that you, you allude to in the book is, is that this was actually an attempt to get rid of a class of, of, of you know, that was, as you said in your speech now, kind of problematic because it, it didn't fit into the... Yeah, no, the, no, the, 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 the peasants didn't fit, and in particular the Ukrainian peasants didn't fit yeah. with their ideas about sovereignty and their ideas about independence and so on. And so... You know, you know, the idea, you know, and the idea of getting, you know, and this wasn't the only group of people he wanted to get rid of. So um, the idea that you want to achieve something in politics and there are groups of people standing in the way and then what you do is you eliminate them in different ways. I mean, this was, this was his, this is how he did politics all along, not only in Ukraine, but all across the Soviet Union. So, um, so no, and, and, and certainly after the Ukrainian famine, there were further, evi- you know, there were other episodes of, um, either mass murder or mass deportation or um, mass arrest. So it was a, you know, this was really the beginning of a whole cycle that lasted through the 1930s and 1940s. Thank you. Um, my name is Camillo. Um, I, I wanted to ask you uh, in regards to sort of um, moral uh, existential guilt that Russia is now facing, but that the West sort of doesn't seem to come to grips with. So. You know, Germany obviously has a great existential guilt about World War Two and Nazis, and if you know Germany ever stepped foot in Poland or in Belgium, the whole world would absolutely cry foul. But you know, to an extent, the world did cry foul when um, you know Russia annexed Crimea and 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 went into Ukraine and stuff. But now you sort of see Stalin as this figure that has had a renaissance of being a, a great Russian leader and this great person. And I can sort of, to an extent, understand that coming to light within Russia. But the thing that sort of frightens me is that in places like the UK, um, like the United States, groups like both you know, the alt-right and Antifa have taken these two symbols and for some reason one gets much more negative coverage than the other. Why do you think... Stalin has sort of been able to save face, you know, 80 years later and still kind of be seen as this positive figure of the left to some people and is not as hated as others. Pretty small number of people in the West who think of Stalin as a positive figure. Um, I worry that some of them might be very close to political power, but um, (laughs) it's it's very small. But, uh, you know, but but your point is certainly true of Russia, where... um, a friend of mine a couple of days ago actually tweeted a photograph taken in a Moscow bookstore of lots and lots of sort of hagiographic biographies of Stalin, which are now for sale, which that was certainly not there um, a decade ago. I mean, I think that's part of, um, again, you know, we have a current leadership of Russia does not have to see itself as the inheritor of the Soviet Union. I mean, it's, you know, it, it, it could... You know, this is a new Russia. It could establish itself. It could choose its heroes. 
um, the leaders of the Russian human rights movement. It was an incredibly creative group of people who really created a lot of the idea of human rights as we know it now. Um, it could have chosen as its heroes, um, you know, Yevgeny Ginsburg or some of the great gulag memoirists and great writers and so on. But it, the, 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 the current leadership has chosen to, to see as its heroes, um, in a real, well, more importantly, to choose as the moment that it most likes to celebrate um, the, the victory over the, over the Germans in 1945. Um, and to repeat every year the celebration of that victory, including sort of uh, soldiers carrying Soviet flags on Red Square and a kind of celebration of the imperial moment of Stalinism, you know, when Stalin had conquered half of Europe and was, uh, was in control. And that seems to be the moment in history that they want to go back to and they want to allude to and they want to show themselves as the inheritors of. I mean, you know, the, it's, it's not as if Russia has had over the past couple of decades a very consistent, I mean, there have been lots of um, projects to educate people about Stalinism and, um, you know, you can, you can see acknowledgments that, you know, not everything Stalin did was good. Um, but I think there's, there's been a reluctance to denounce him and a reluctance to abandon him because he still seems for a lot of, um, people, you know, this moment when Russia was great and we want to make Russia great again. And there's a kind of harking back to the, and, yes, harking back to that, um, to that imperial moment. I mean, I think it's really, I think it's more about the current regime's need to justify itself and legitimate itself and see itself as part of some kind of continuous piece of history. Um, you know, and yet it's odd. And yet you can see on Russian TV, you can see movies and so on about Stalinism. They're less than flattering. So it's not, it's not an entirely one-sided phenomenon, but I agree it's getting worse. So. Thank you very much. Uh, and I still have your book. I'm going to give it for, back. For, for the talk and for the book, I'm halfway through and I can recommend it. It's, um, it's a horrible book, but it's also horribly, horribly well written. Thanks. Um, my, <laughs> my, uh, my name is Torbjörn Solström. I'm Swedish ambassador, but I have a particular interest for these sort of things. And my question has to do with um, with contemporary uh, politics, uh, partly. Uh, um, you were described now the the attitude that Russia takes to 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 some of these events. But could you describe a bit more how what is the um, what's the official Russian version uh, of the of this famine now, what would you read in Russian textbooks? How would the Russian state describe what happened during this year? And perhaps, if if you want, also something about how the famine plays in today's Ukrainian uh, politics. Eric, I think, said in initially that uh, it it is an important factor in the uh, sort of the birth or the creation of, of the Ukrainian nation. Um, but how is it? How does it? play in, 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 in the Ukraine of today? So I have a whole chapter in my book on exactly that subject. <coughs> Sorry? So, you know, you'll get to it. Um, <coughs> um, and so, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's a long story. The, the Russian attitude towards the famine has changed over time. Um, in the 1980s, when Bob Conquest wrote his book about the famine, and this was a book that was based on mostly memoirs, but also some of the public evidence. Um, 
he wrote the book, and it was and the book was published. And at the same time, there was a big congressional investigation into the history of the Ukrainian famine. This is sort of Cold War era Reagan, um, a sort of Reagan moment. Um, and at that time, the Russian, well, that was, sorry, then the Soviet government was very, very concerned about all this activity and put, made huge efforts to discredit conquest, to undermine the book. Um, there was actually a counter book that was written, um, published very oddly by a kind of Ukrainian, I mean, sorry, Canadian labor activist called Fraud, Famine, and Fascism. Um, and the book essentially said that uh, the famine was a fraud, conquest was um, a CIA agent, and anybody who talked about the famine was a fascist. And there was a kind of Nazi, it was Nazi propaganda, and there was nothing to it. Um, in the 1990s, that, that attitude sort of moved quite a lot. Um, and there were, you know, there was even a moment where there, you would get Russian historians and, um, you know, semi-official figures in the Russian state who would at least acknowledge, okay, there was a famine, but it wasn't directed at Ukraine, or lots of people died, but it was an accident. Um, and there were a number of books written saying more or less that, or saying there might have been a bit of intentionality, but basically the famine was caused by, you know, the chaos of collectivization, and there was nothing specifically Ukrainian about it. Um, as the evidence began to come out, as people began working in the archives, and particularly as people focused on this, uh, you know, there's a kind of archival record of these Politburo decisions in the autumn of 1932, that are particularly directed at Ukraine. As people began focusing on that, um, uh, the, 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 the narrative shifted a little bit, and you now are once again actually beginning to get Russian historians who, who, who deny the famine. I mean, they're not really real historians, but you can, you can find on websites much more active famine denial. Um, a piece of that story is also, and this is, a, this is a, another big you know, a whole big complicated subject. A piece of that story is also the Ukrainian government's attempt to have the famine recognized by the United Nations as a genocide. Um, and that, that the, there was an enormous Russian diplomatic pushback against that that lasted many years and still goes on. Um, and that was, and there's even a very funny, um, there's a, believe it or not, a WikiLeaks document, which is a U.S., somebody from, I don't remember if it was the ambassador, but a U.S., somebody in the State Department in one of the Central Asian countries who hears Prince Andrew telling a story about um, how, I, now I can't remember, you know, the, the leaders of Azerbaijan have been told by the Russians they, they need to not support this famine resolution of the U.N. or else, you know, the Russians will take revenge on them. And it's a very funny story because of the convoluted way in which you hear it. But um, the... You know, they, they put a lot of effort into making sure that that didn't happen, and they saw that as a kind of insult to Russia and so on. Um, in Ukraine, there's also been a kind of evolution. Um, in the early days, in the, in the 90s, there was a moment when, you know, the famine was one of the few pieces of recent Ukrainian history that everybody could agree about, because Ukrainian history is complicated. The story of the war is complicated. Um, the story even of communism, you know, there were communists, there were, sorry, there were Ukrainians on both sides, there were Ukrainian communists, there were Ukrainian Nazi collaborators, there were Ukrainians who fought the Nazis, you know, so it's a very hard, difficult 20th century history. And the famine seemed almost a unifying point. And it's something that um, there, began, there began to be a custom of celebrations or commemorations, rather, every five years, um, major events in Kiev with all politicians present, um, who sought to um, 
commemorate the famine and memorialize it. And that became particularly um, under President Yanukovych, who saw this as a you know, really big cause and built memorials and started the funding of a museum and so on. Um, it's a little bit different now. I think something is happening in Ukraine. Um, I mean, I hope I'm right in what I think is happening in Ukraine, which is that Ukraine is beginning to get its self-confidence and its sense of identity from other things. I mean, now we've had the Orange Revolution, we've had the Maidan, we have two decades of, you know, more or less sovereign politics. Um, and the famine, the famine is fading as a kind of crucial part of the national story, you know, that we need to have the famine center, you know, as a centerpiece to our, to our nation's history. There seem to be other things um, th that are more important now. And I, I actually think that's good. I think it's healthy. It's not, you know, you don't want your national narrative to be solely about tragedy. Um, and that seems less and less. But it's still a, it's a story that um, most people do know. It is talked about. It's taught in schools. Um, I don't know how well people know it. Um, I don't know how well it's, it's, it's been taught or studied. But it's certainly part of the landscape and it's part of the, part of the story. But as I say, less and less a, um, you know, the, the main thing that defines what it means to be Ukrainian. More now there are, there, are, there are other pieces of history that people turn to and talk about, which I think is positive. Here. So, what, two or three more questions? Thank you. Uh, John Hume, hist uh, teacher of history. Um, I was just wondering whether there is any evidence that the predominantly Russian-speaking population um, in eastern Ukraine were spared uh, this, awful, uh, this awful experience. Um, the answer to that is no. Um, the famine didn't distinguish between Russian and Ukrainian speakers. Um, and also, the Russian population of eastern Ukraine was less than. Um, and so one of the effects of the famine was that, in the, certainly in the immediate aftermath, um, quite a lot of Russian peasants were moved into Ukraine um, to replace, you, I mean, there were empty villages and there were f fields that needed to be tilled. It's not really clear from the records how successful this operation were, but some many thousands of people were brought to repopulate Ukraine, which Ukrainians off, you know, now remember as a kind of ethnic cleansing. Um, more importantly, in the decades <clears throat> and years afterwards, uh, Russians poured into Ukraine, both in, particularly in the east because of the factories uh, and the mines there, but also into the major cities where they occupied jobs and, you know, they came down to run hospitals and institutions. And the, you know, the Russification of Ukraine, um, which happened in the wake, of, which sort of sped up in the wake of the famine, partly explains why there are so many Russian speakers in the East. It's not the only reason, but it's, um, it's one of the reasons. But no, there, the, you know, the rural Ukraine at the time of the famine was probably mostly Ukrainian-speaking, but, but it wouldn't have necessarily distinguished between different kinds of peasants at that time. And remember, also, I should, you know, to be clear... You can be a Russian-speaking Ukrainian or a Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainian. So it's a, it's a bilingual country. So it's uh, you mentioned the attempts in Sorry, the 30s. Can you introduce yourself? Sir? Sorry? Introduce yourself. Oh, please. hi. I'm, hello, I'm John. <laughs> um, you, you mentioned hi, John. Um, the attempts in the 30s to cover up the, the famine, census records, that kind of thing. Have you any thoughts about people here in the West who contributed to that? People Ooh, like I George have a whole Bernard chapter Shaw. on that too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, uh, there were people in the West who contributed to it. Um, part of the repression of the story was Stalin's attempt to prevent Western journalists from writing about the famine. Um, and this was difficult to do because it was, to anybody who lived in Moscow in the early 1930s, it was clear that there were food shortages and everybody knew that people were dying. And, the shoot, and it, it reached Moscow too, there were shortages there as well. Um, the Western press corps in Moscow came under particular pressure not to write about it. Uh, and they, had, they were in a funny position. In those days, they really only lived there on the say-so of the Soviet government. They could be kicked out at any time. Everything they wrote was censored. It had to go through a foreign office censor before it could be sent by telegram uh, to their newspapers. And they, they all understood very well that this was a topic you didn't write about. Um, so there was very, very little coverage. There were a couple of interesting and curious exceptions. Uh, one of them was a Welsh journalist named Gareth Jones, who was sort of a freelance journalist, which is, I have a lot of sympathy for him since I was once a freelance journalist as well. Um, and he flew to Ukraine in 1933, wangled a visa because he was a, some kind of junior secretary to Lloyd George, um, and got permission to go to Kharkiv. And he spent a few days in Moscow making notes, and then he took the train from Moscow to Kharkiv and got off the train. This is in like March 1933, which is really the height of the famine. He got off the train and he walked down the train tracks for about, th about three days before he was arrested, um, describing and making notes about what he saw. Um, and then they, somebody politely took him back to Kharkiv. Um, he finished his trip. He left the Soviet Union. He went to Berlin and he gave a press conference. And he gave a big press conference in which he announced there was a terrible famine in the Soviet Union. You know, thousands or hundreds of thousands of people are dying. He described very precisely what it was that he'd seen. And the story was pretty big. It was picked up by a couple of US correspondents there and began to circulate. And the, it reached the dean of the Moscow Press Corps at that time, who was an American journalist. Actually, he was British, but he was writing for a journalist writing for the New York Times called Walter Durante. And Durante, whether he did this of his own volition or whether it was because he himself had done some very positive reporting about collectivization, whether it was to defend his own record, whether it was a favor to Stalin, you know, it's not clear why he did it. He wrote a major article in which he denounced Gareth Jones. He said, this Welshman, he's very young, you know, okay, he speaks a little Russian, but he doesn't really know what he was seeing. And he was walking through Ukraine. He's missed the big picture. And the headline of the story was, Russians hungry but not starving. Um, and this was, a, this was a famous, you know, famous piece of Of course, at the time, Durante, who was probably one of the most famous journalists actually in the world at that time, he was a very influential correspondent. He was very well known. Um, later on, he came back. He met Roosevelt, um, who consulted him to learn about Russia. Um, when the first, when the U.S. finally recognized the Soviet Union, there was a big ceremony at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, and Durante was invited um, and was applauded there and so on. So, of course, at that moment in history, Durante won the argument. I mean, who was Gareth Jones? He was 25 or something and 28. And Walter Durante was famous and important, and he won the argument, and the famine story um, faded away. So interestingly, you know, in history now, Durante is now often remembered for having been a famous liar, you know, for having covered up 
um, the stories of the Soviet Union and having dissembled and so on. I mean, he's, literally his name is a kind of, uh, you know, that's what he's known for and what he's remembered, remembered for. And Gareth Jones has had a kind of revival. He's quite famous in Wales. They make documentaries about him. Um, there are plaques to him in various places. His books, his notebooks have recently been published. So there's been a kind of reversal of their fates. But it's certainly true that at the time, efforts made to make sure the West didn't know about it were, were great um, and extreme. And there were other, there were some other sources too. The Catholic Church knew things um, that it got from, um, from priests and from others who, who saw what was happening. Um, there were some efforts also to kind of try to speak to the Soviet Union and so on. Mostly, you also have to remember what, what, what else was happening in the world in 1933. Hitler had just come to power. Um, and many people felt, you know, this isn't really the right time, you know, to be attacking Stalin or to be bringing up atrocities in the Soviet Union. And there literally, there's a, there's a foreign office record. There's a conversation about the, the foreign office begins having internally about the famine because, of course, they also know about it because their diplomats have seen it. And it's generally decided, well, there's not that much we can do about it. Um, we need to, we're much more worried about Hitler. Um, what's happening in Germany is really very dangerous. And this is none of our business. And so there was a, wasn't, wasn't a, I wouldn't say it was a conspiracy to cover up. It was just a kind of uncomfortable story at that particular moment. And so it gets, it was left out of, of most, with some exceptions. Mainstream. I should say Malcolm Muggeridge um, also wrote several pieces about the famine. He wrote them anonymously because so, so, he was in Moscow at the time and he didn't want to lose his, his place there. And they were published by The Guardian but very heavily edited because people didn't really believe it. And again, I think, I think his story is conflicted directly with the news of Hitler's rise to power in Germany. So the, so the answer is people knew, but somehow it wasn't, just wasn't big news. Can I ask you something that um, you also mentioned in passing, what <clears throat> this significance of grain, and, and you know, it was about, of course, feeding the big cities in, in Russia, but, but actually throughout most of this period, I think Russia or the Soviet Union is ex exporting grain, or, and, and, uh, yes. and of course, can you say something about that? Yes, this was another, you know, I, 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 in, in my attempt to not talk too long, I didn't want to hit every issue, but yes, throughout this period, less so in 1933, actually, they, when they basically ran out of grain, but certainly in 30, 31, 32, the Soviet Union was exporting grain. And one of the other reasons for this intense pressure on the peasants was to get grain out of the peasants in order to sell it abroad, in order to finance Soviet industrialization. Um, and in fact, one of the suggestions that the Ukrainian communists made to Stalin in 1932 when they wrote to him was, could we stop exports this year? You know, you know could we stop collecting grain this year and sending it abroad because, um, you know, because people are running out of food? But the grain exports were considered a you know, bigger priority than keeping people alive. I think we have time for one or two more, yeah. We, we, we'll go to, for 15 minutes. I know, but I'm losing my voice, and I don't want to be like Theresa May. <laughs> are, the, are the letters falling off now? <laughs> Thank you. This works. Yeah. Thank you very much. Um, my name is Sofia. I'm a student at the um, School of Slavonic and Eastern European Studies. Um, and my question is about the difference um, in civil society in Ukraine and Russia. So you mentioned throughout your talk and just 
looking at recent events, there is a clear um, ability of the Ukrainian um, nation to mobilize and overthrow regimes or, um, you know, explain their strong stance against the Communist Party, for example. And yet, um, what we saw in 1919 and what we see today is this um, repeated fear of the Russian government or the Soviet government back in the time um, that... Uh, any uprising in Ukraine might cause the same thing in Russia or the Soviet Union back then. Um, how would you explain this difference um, in two countries that are side by side? So one is able to have a strong civil society on its own, it seems, or maybe because of different historical factors, while another is looking on this impetus from a neighbor, neighboring nation. So I wouldn't say that Russians can't do civil society. I mean, it's, there's a lot of counter evidence to that. But it is true that there is, in Ukraine, it's almost, I mean, you, you, the, the ability of people to self-organize, whether it's, you know, partisans during the war, or whether it's, um, whether it's, you know, organizing that incredible system of getting food to people on the Maidan during those long demonstrations, um, you know, and, and, and yet the, the, catastrophe of so many state institutions in Ukraine is really miraculous. I mean, you have this incredibly talented and creative people who are good at making stuff and doing things in groups together. But as soon as it becomes state power, the thing falls apart. And, you know, it must, it must date back, um, you know, a long time. And of course, I think the real, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't mean to be flippant, but it, it, it's, um, you know, it, it, it clearly has something to do with the fact that the Ukrainian state is very new. And, um, you know, there was no Ukrainian state before in history, really, before 1991, um, even though there were quasi, you know, there was the Ukrainian Republic inside the Soviet Union and, and other, you know, other in the past, other groups within other societies. Um, so that it's something about, you know, the national energy has always gone into non-state institutions. Um, it's always gone into Ukrainian national committees or societies or intellectual groups and so on, whereas, of course, in Russia, you've had this incredibly powerful state, you know, for many centuries. And, so, and that has attracted talented, um, good people, whereas I think the reverse happens in Ukraine. Um, so, the, so the real question is why the, you know, why the Russians have, um, you know, why they have such powerful state institutions in Ukraine, such weak ones. I mean, I think that's just a... You know, that's the long reflection of, of the relationship between the two. Um, I don't know. I, 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 had, I still have a lot of hope for Russian civil society. I, it's, a, it's, such a, um, it's such a creative country, um, you know, even, even creatively good at corruption and dreaming up ways to rip off the West. I mean, it's actually extraordinary. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't count it off as, a, as something that they can't do. It's just that right now they seem to be focused on other things. But. I mean, George Soros has described the Ukrainian civil society as the most vibrant in, in Europe. Yeah, I mean, because people, people feel they have no... If you're a patriotic person and you want to do something um, and you dislike the state and its institutions because they're corrupt, you know, then what do you do? You form a movement or you create a party or you create an anti-corruption organization or you create a television station, you know, there, and there are I mean, numerous fantastic examples of that. But at some point it has to translate into, you know, formal politics and state institutions or it will, or it won't last. My name is Artyom. I'm a postgrad student at LSC, political communication. I'm originally from Belarus, a journalist. 
And uh, the most convincing and, so to say, reasonable, or at least seemingly reasonable counter-argument to all the Holodomor studies and researches is what you've mentioned as it is what not exclusively the Ukrainian story, that it happened throughout the south of Russia, in Kazakhstan, mm -hmm. in Caucasus, and uh, in, in, in some other places. With regards to your argument that uh, the cleansing of intelligentsia followed, this also happened in my home country, in Belarus. So it's once again, this was not solely the Ukrainian uh, trend. What do you make of this argument, and what is your counter-argument to so, this? So, I, you know, I absolutely agree with you. So I think the way to look at the Ukrainian famine is that it was a kind of, you know, famine within the famine. Um, and the best metaphor I've seen is, um, uh, you know, we talk about Nazi atrocities in a very general sense, and that means a lot of things. And then within the broad category of Nazi atrocities, we talk about the Holocaust as very specifically what that was and how it happened. And I would see the Ukrainian famine like that. So you can speak more generally about the Soviet famine. And within that, there's this very specific story of Ukraine. Um, it's clear to me that Ukraine was, you know, that the, 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 moment, the decision to make the famine worse in Ukraine you know, is taken in the fall of 1932, and then the famine is allowed to run in Ukraine until the following summer, you know, at which point, at which point grain requisitions in Ukraine stop, um, and they allow people to uh, have access to food again. The new harvest comes in and so on. So, yes, there was, a, there wa there was hunger in many places, but it was worsened and made, um, and, you know, uh, made um, more dramatic in Ukraine, and the numbers are extraordinary. I mean, it is... Um, the, the percentage of people who die is much higher in Ukraine. Um, the percentage of, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the numbers of uh, Ukrainian communists arrested and so on, the percentage are all simply much higher than they were anywhere else. Um, I think there is a separate story to be told, and um, I hope it will be told about Kazakhstan, where there was also a famine. Um, and this one was directed, it was a little bit different, it was directed at um, nomads. Um, and that's, you know, that's, that's another story within, again, this broader category of Soviet famines and Soviet atrocities. And so my book is about Ukraine and why specifically Ukraine, but I, I would not argue that Ukraine was unique or that it's only in Ukraine that, you know, that anything bad happened. You know, on the contrary, um, you know, a, a few years later in 1937, Stalin launches the Great Purge, um, most of whose victims are Russians. So, so it's not a... Um, you know, th this is a this is a particular story, and it happened in a particular way. And it also had the Ukrainian famine because it was suppressed, and because it then became part of a Ukrainian argument about national identity and sovereignty and the need for nationhood. Um, you know, ha is particularly important to understand. You know how it unfolded and how it happened. But you know, were, you know, did other bad things happen in the Soviet Union in the 1930s? You know, yes. So. That, that's how I answer that. Okay, I take a couple of more questions. I hit one in the middle here. <coughs> Why don't I collect three questions? And then, yeah. Hello, my name is Louis Dratko. I'm intrigued by the Red Famine because you're talking about Soviet Union and Ukraine, but also have China, you have Cambodia, North mm -hmm. Korea, perhaps with different uh, colors, Cuba, more recently, yeah, Venezuela. we could have a book called Red Famine, and it could be about China. 
about China. So I, do you think perhaps when you mention this kind of phenomena, are you referring to something that is intrinsic, uh, inherent to communist revolutions? Perhaps part of it, it is almost in inevitable. Um, so, yes. Um, so what a lot of communist revolutions have in common is the... Um, so what a lot of them had in common was this deep belief that they were carrying out a policy that was not only justified and morally correct, but based on a scientific interpretation of history given to them by Marx. And that interpretive history, interpretation of history could not be wrong. And so when anything went wrong, in the, whether it was in the economic planning or agriculture, um, there had to be an explanation for why it was wrong. And the explanation could never be that the theory was wrong. So it had to be that somebody was in the way. And it was spies or saboteurs or kulaks or Ukrainians or somebody else was preventing the revolution from happening the way it was supposed to be happening. And this you see over and over and over again. And this is, you know, I'm being, again, I'm being maybe overly flippant or overly, you know, I'm being brief, but this pattern reasserted itself over and again in, in, in com one communist revolution after the next. Um, so no, it's, I don't think it's an accident. I think it is it, that but the, you know, the idea that, I mean, remember the revolution was for everybody and the workers and the peasants were supposed to support it because it was for them. And if they were against it, as they were in Ukraine, and remember this particularly anti-Bolshevik language, left-wing anti-Bolshevik language in Ukraine bothered the Bolsheviks a lot. Um, so if they were against it, then there had to be a reason and they had to be got rid of, they had to be eliminated. So the idea that you eliminate your enemies and therefore you create the state that you want was, was common to almost all of them. Um, so no, it's not an accident. I mean, that and the, you know, a lot of the theories, particularly about collectivization and how farms should be run, were based on, I mean, what we would now call just bad economics. Um, and so they, they did tend to produce food shortages and famines and distribution problems. Um, and although the people weren't always starving, those problems continued right up until the end, I mean, in, um, in, in, in every country. So, that, so yeah, the, the, the problem of lack of food was intrinsic to all of them. Last question. Thank you, Piroz Mohácsi, also from LSE. Great to have you here at LSE, and fascinating talk. Can you tell a little bit more about the role of the church in all of this? Normally, it would be a coping mechanism, a system that would support um, in a time of stress in, in countries where, where, where it's, um, it's prevalent. Now here, of course, the peasantry was very religious. So what was the relationship between sort of the attack on the peasantry and their religiousness and, and, and the relationship to the church and the role of the church in, in all this, in this whole equation? So the church was one of the victims of collectivization and the famine. So that as collectivization was carried out, literally, um, I have a photograph in my book of church bells lying on a ground somewhere. So they literally took down church bells. One of the reasons why is because they were afraid that the peasants would ring them and that that would help organize you know, rebel movements. Um, so the, the churches were um, destroyed, sometimes physically, sometimes um, they were turned into other things. Priests were arrested. Um, the attack on the church was part of the idea of undermining the culture and undermining 
the links that people had with one another and undermining peasant society. That was done all over the Soviet Union. Um, it's interesting because it's one of these things that I had thought happened in 1917 at the time of the revolution. You know, they would go to, but actually it happened, that happened in Moscow and big cities in 1917. But the, the real attack on the church in the countryside actually happens at this time. I mean, in, in 19, um, uh, at the time of collectivization and then afterwards during the famine. So this, this moment represents the end of the church in rural Ukraine. Um, so, so the people who, I mean, another point that some people have made is in 1920 and 21, when they had the, this earlier famine, um, the church played a huge role in helping people and distributing food. And I mean, it was a kind of piece of civil society inside the countryside. And of course, it was gone by 1933, and so there, were, there wasn't anybody to serve that function and, um, and organize people. So that, that I mean, the, the story of the church is that it wasn't there by then. Okay, I think we should let Anne rest her voice. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. much.